Welcome to the Ecclesia Global Podcast, where we believe in the sovereign move of the Lord to reform the church and the spheres of society globally. (laughs) Clap your hands, make some noise for the morning session. We are making history right now, early. Thank you, Jesus. I apologize to all the prophetic people who don't go to sleep till 4 or 5 a.m. Because I know this is extremely early for us, but we're grateful. Somebody say amen. Amen. So we're going to deal with the case for apostleship, gods and nations. And uh, this is is meant to be a little bit more of a a workshop or seminar presentation than it is a a sermon. And uh, I always like to, in these settings... um, open the floor up for Q&A because I think that that is a good way to reinforce what you have heard and what you have learned and uh, we'll just go from there. Is that all right? All right, so we're going to deal with apostleship. Now this is, it's really important for us to understand it and I wanted this to be uh, an initial presentation or statement coming from me concerning Ecclesia. I feel like it should be the uh, the first statement because it is going to put some meat and bones on what it is that we're building and what we're doing. Um, And it is really important that we are all on the same page, that we all have the same understanding so that the vision that the Lord has given can be embraced upon our hearts and then we'll know what our part is in all of that. Uh, One of the things that is very important for us to recognize is that this baby is already born. Okay, so we're not birthing Ecclesia Global. We're not birthing a movement. The movement has already happened. The baby has already come out. Now, we have a greater responsibility. Now, while we were birthing it, and we were watering it with prophecy. We were praying. We were interceding. We were pushing concerning it. But now that it is here, we can't take the baby, put it in a bassinet, and leave it in the corner. Somebody say Amen. We have to care for the baby if the baby is to grow, if the baby is to develop. And so that uh, brings the um, focal point of our responsibility really on us because we are the people that have been charged to build. Now, you got to realize most of the tremendous networks that we see in the body of Christ today are already built and they already have levels of maturity. So most churches, most pastors, most leaders that connect to those networks are connecting to a system where the only thing they have to do is acquiesce and fit in. That's all they have to do. They pay their fees, they attend the conferences and the services and the meetings, and then they become a part of something that exists. It's very, 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 very different when you are the ones called to build it. Somebody say amen. So in essence, what we are doing is starting a church, but on a global level. Somebody write that in your notes. That was good. We're starting a church, but on a global level. So all of you as senior pastors, remember what it was like when you started a church. You're probably carrying uh, fold-up chairs in your car. You're probably picking up everybody. All the ministers and drummers were all in your back seat, right? If you didn't bring them, then wasn't no service that night, etc. Well, that's literally what we are doing right now. So if we don't have the appropriate mentality, it's important that you understand that um, we are builders. You've been anointed to build. You've been called to build. And you have to have the kind of commitment. I am so honored that people will see what we're doing, see the vision, be willing to come. Most of you have come by sacrifice. Somebody say amen to you. You've sown seeds already. Say amen to you. 
because you see a vision and have been gripped by something that you believe that God's hand is on. So that's a huge statement, and we honor and appreciate you for that, all right? So let's talk about apostleship, and, and one of the reasons we're going to talk about apostleship is because I believe that it is one of the focal points that the Father has right now concerning the kingdom of God in the earth. Um, part of my thesis statement for my ministry is that God is bringing all things back to his original blueprint and purpose. So what does that mean? What does it look like? What is the structure? What is the strategy? And so we know that the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. And then it begins to delineate for us the rest of what God's structural environment looks like for his church and his kingdom. Okay, so if he's bringing us back to it, it means, number one, we have veered off from it, and we have to acknowledge that, but it, then it means, number two, we have to put it in divine order. So God's uh, issue is not just to highlight apostleship, but he's restoring apostleship, okay, because we know that if it is first apostles, the Greek word for first there is proton, which means first in order first in order of importance, it means chief, it means highest in rank. It literally means that for all the people that say there's no rank in the kingdom. Well, just read your Bible again, because there is. And so the reason uh, apostleship has a highlight is because if first things have to be first, that means it determines how everything else flows. So if the first thing is out of order, everything else will be out of order because the anointing flows from the head down. Okay, so if you have a senior pastor that is full of lies, deceit, and corruption, guess what that church is going to be full with? Because the anointing flows from the head down, okay? So if God's kingdom is misaligned because first things are not first in proper order and in proper placement, then it means the end result will be that everything is not in divine order, all right? Now, there's a redemptive principle that is always at work with anything that pertains to God and ultimately... And finally, all things will work together for our good to those who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. So that means it just has to work. Somebody say amen. All right. So let's talk about apostleship so that we have uh, a good understanding of who we are, what we're doing. This is an apostolic network. Say apostolic network. Which means that it is not just a fellowship of people that have a commonality of ideas, a commonality of interests. Uh, something, you know, maybe I'll just do in my spare time when I have time to entreat it and then I don't. It, it's not that. You have to understand the thing about an apostolic network, when it is authentically called by God, it means that it is an agency. Say agency. Set in the earth to facilitate a specific purpose of God. Okay? So that's what you have to understand about agencies. They are employed by the Holy Spirit because there's something the Holy Spirit wants to have done in the earth. There's something that is time sensitive. It is often uh, geographically specific. Um, it is often uh, people specific. There are things that God wants to do. All right. So think about it. When God thought about this time span in his mind before the creation of the earth, in his omniscience when he considered 2019 and what the landscape of the earth and the kingdom would look like, he thought all of us into this time span. Okay? You are the manifestation of the logos or the concept of God. You're not here coincidentally. You're not here by accident. It's not happenstance. It is deliberate. Okay? He didn't put Paul here. He put you here. He didn't put Elijah here. He put you here. Okay? That's forethought. 
All right. And so if he put us here in this day, in it, then it means that we have been equipped with what this day necessitates. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. So there are things that we have to address as an agency. Um, yeah. So here it is. In the Greek, the word apostle is apostolos, which means in an emissary or one who was sent off an, an ambassage or a mission. So an emissary or one who was sent off on an ambassage or a mission. It typically involved one being sent with a message, thus the messenger office attributes, okay? It also includes all of the dynamics of an ambassador or an envoy. So the first thing you have to do to understand an apostle is that you have to take the apostle out of the construct and context of an ecclesiastical church setting, okay? Because an apostle is not a church office. Let me step on all the sacred cows, break them, disintegrate them. Apostleship is not a church office. He sets them in the church, but it's an office that withstands the church. Okay? Somebody say amen. Okay. Um, an ambassador, by definition, is uh, an official envoy, especially a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or a sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign or appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment, all right? So ambassador, envoy is the direct, say direct, direct. representation of the sovereign or the government who sent them, okay? Direct representation. So that means when we are dealing with apostleship, authentic, and I have to keep saying authentic because we're in a generation where everybody's an apostle. It's just true. If you call Domino's and they deliver the pizza, nine times out of ten, the delivery person is an apostle. I just That's just the reality, okay? If you go to a church, nine times out of ten, the, the head leader is going to be an apostle, okay? If you go down to get your EBT or your food stamps, nine times out of ten, the clerk is an apostle. That's just that's our society because people <laughs> are trying <laughs> to my say amen. But an apostle is the direct dispatch and the representative of the sovereign who commissioned them, okay? So it means that when an apostle shows up, they are a visible representation of the deity who sent them. That's going to be uncomfortable. Just breathe. Okay? It's important that you know that, all right? An ambassador is the highest-ranking diplomat who represents a country. Ambassadors are the chief officers of embassies, which governments place in the capitals of foreign countries. Ambassadors do not only exist in embassies, but also in business, finance, charities, and other organizations. Okay? According to eDiplomat, an ambassador is the chief of a diplomatic mission, the ranking official, diplomatic representative of his country to the country to which he is accredited and the personal representative of his own head of state to the head of state of the host country. Okay? So let's speed that up. The embassy of the kingdom of God, for the most part we call them churches, 
but the embassy in and of itself is a satellite of God's heavenly and eternal government. That's what the church is, okay? So when we think about the ecclesia, um, the word for church in the Greek translated church, it is never just supposed to be a religious society of people. It was never intended to be that. That was not the concept of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus when he incepted it. The concept was that he was creating a political party. That's really what he did. He created a political organization. Y'all right? So it's like Democrat, Republican, Ecclesia. That's what he did. He created a political party, all right? And so his political party has within them the inherent and internal kingdom of God, which means the system of God, the principles of God, the sovereign himself lives inside of those that are a part of the Ecclesia, and what they are supposed to do is cause the government that is in them to be superimposed on every other government and every other system that they interface with, all right? That was his agenda. So that's why when he was about to ascend, the disciples that he had trained asked the question, well, are you at this time now going to restore the nation back to Israel? You're leaving. We're here. You've taught us. You've trained us. We're ready to take over, not just a church society and world, but literally the political sphere. We're ready to rule. He said, well, it's not for you to know the times that the Lord has appointed in his own hand, right? That was the response. But it shows you their mindset because the expectation was they were going to take over the spheres of society. Is that all right? Somebody say amen. So these definitions alone take apostleship out of the realm of just religion, out of ecclesiastical structure and church activity. Apostleship is connected to God's position as the sovereign of his own nation, the governor of all of creation, and the guardian of all things. An ambassador, diplomat, deputy, or envoy, apostle, is the representative of the sending agent or principal who employed them. So in their sphere, say apostles have a sphere. In their sphere, which is their realm of jurisdiction, which also includes geographical land space within certain boundaries and the people in those territories, in that sphere, the apostle is the representation of God's government, the chief official to enact and legislate what he has commanded, and the facilitator charged with carrying out the missions that they themselves are the embodiment of. I know this sounds like a, a, a politics or government class. Just flow with me for a minute. Is that all right? Okay. So the apostle, say this with me, the apostle, is the embodiment of their ambassage. So every single apostle has been sent into the earth as a representation of the Godhead with an assignment that they have to discharge. Okay? Can I tell you something else? It's not something that you make up. It's not something that you dream up. It'll be a lifelong mission. It'll be a lifelong vision. It will be something that was inbred in you by the Holy Spirit that you will recall from your earliest recollections. You will know your apostleship. You will know your assignment. You will know the sphere, right? Because God's programs or his enterprises are contingent upon the apostles' successful cooperation with what he wants done in the earth. So he can't allow you to not know who you are. There's too much writing on it. All right, let me just keep going. I don't want to preach. I just, I mean, just follow the notes. I'll just read the notes. Okay? Apostleship predates the establishment of the church. Say that with me. Apostleship 
predates the establishment of the church, which means the church cannot regulate apostleship and it really can't really validate it unless it is the other officers in the church that are doing the validating. Okay? Church can't do it. The church system, the church structure cannot define it. So that's why a lot of apostles that are authentically called of God often feel that when they were in certain church uh, segments or, or structures, they were always suffocated. Because you're trying to be defined by something that does not have the wherewithal to define you or affirm you. And so at best, all it can do is kill you. It either tolerates you or kills you. Because it doesn't understand it, all right? And so when we deal, we are so off. I mean, when I tell you this church world is off, this thing is off. We're going to get it back. We're going to get it right. That's what we're doing. But it's off, okay? Because most churches operate under a pastoral paradigm and mandate. God never told the pastors to govern. There's only one scripture that even says pastor in the entire New Testament, Ephesians 4 and 11. And it doesn't even really define what they're supposed to do. Y'all don't like that. That's all right. As I say in my church, when I leave the Bible, there you go. Second I walk out of this book, you have permission to leave. There's only one scripture that mentions the pastor. Yet we have pastors that are in charge of everything. So that's why we have this inept church system with no power, no authority. They've killed all the prophets off. Some of them needed to be killed off. But they killed them all off. Somebody say amen. Because you're coming there trying to rip up the church to shreds because you got a word. No, calm down, sit down, find out where it fits in the structure, right? Um, but this is not a prophetic discourse. We'll get to y'all later, next year. Uh, <laughs> right? But they killed the prophets, murdered the apostles, slaughtered them, run away from it because they don't understand it, and most pastors are afraid that you're going to take their people and their economy. Somebody say amen. I can't let you prophesy because it looks like you're more powerful than me. Now they're going to try to follow you. Well, not if I'm a mature prophet. I'm not coming to take your church. And most prophets by themselves would make horrible pastors, most of them. There are some that have the graces that interrelate. But most prophets in and of themselves are the exact opposite of a pastoral mantle, the exact opposite. Pastors love to be with people. They love their phone ringing at 2 and 3 o'clock because somebody has a need. Prophets are asleep or praying or not wanting to be bothered with you. It's, 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 they literally are opposing mantles. I don't know why everybody's trying to put them together. Oh, yeah, economy. A lot of prophets become pastors because of stable economy when they're not traveling. Yeah. Okay? This thing is not a whack. It's not according to divine order. Biblical divine order, y'all got to get this. So if I'm teaching you something that you don't know or you never consider it like that, just receive it. It's true. Biblical divine order, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, is first apostles. So if there is a church that does not have an apostle as a leader or is not connected to a network and organization with an authentic apostle, that church is out of divine order. Period. I don't care if they have 20,000 members. I don't care if they have 30,000. I don't care if they have a multi-million dollar budget on a monthly basis. They are out of divine order. Okay? Woo! That went over good. The office was created out of God's position of being the sovereign over all of creation and not just his posture as a loving father and savior. Say, God is more than a loving father and savior. We only have heard him as the great shepherd because we have learned Christ through a pastoral paradigm. We have not learned Christ from an apostolic mindset. There's a ring that wasn't here a second ago. There is, we never learned him apostolically. 
Just let that sit there. Your pastor taught you all those Bible stories about Jesus, the meek and lowly lamb, the bruised, beaten savior, who's crying over all the lost souls, waiting for somebody to hopefully at the end of the service run to the altar to accept him. He's sitting there weeping and crying, waiting, hoping, right? They didn't teach us about the Lord Jesus in Revelation with the sword coming out of his mouth, executing judgment over nations and warning the church that if you don't return to your first love, the candlestick here that represents you in front of my father's presence, I will remove it. You will no longer be attached to him. That's the sovereign of creation that most pastors have never met. The apostles and prophets have to know him. Because you cannot, Ephesians 2.20, be a foundation gift as an apostle and prophet if you don't know the chief cornerstone. Okay? So our experience with the Lord, apostolically and prophetically, usually is drastically different than the experience that most pastoral Christians have had with God. They only know his grace and his love. We know his goodness and his severity. Yeah. We've seen him judge people and snatch them out of the earth, and we knew that it was the consequence of their error. Because there are times when we were the ones that had to issue the word in the edict to get you out of here. We have encountered the severe dealings of God in places in our lives when we have been errant or rebellious. <clears throat> Most of my say amen, if y'all know what I'm talking about. Seasons where we knew we were not in alignment with God and we knew he gave us a good whooping that we have remembered for the rest of our lives and we know not to cross him like that again. That's our encounter with him. Most Christians don't handle God on that level of maturity, okay? Because it's to whom much is given. So if he didn't give it to you, he leaves you in a safe place. Because you're judged according to what you know. That's the measurement, okay? Somebody say amen. So we have to learn in this age God through an apostolic paradigm. We have to learn him that way, which means that the apostles and the prophets have to teach him and have to reveal him that way. Because if the body doesn't see the Lord as he truly is, then the dysfunction that we see in the body will only be perpetuated. Okay? And so it went to, and I didn't, I was trying my hardest to be very, very nice last night and very, very diplomatic. But if you notice, we guard the realms of worship in this house. So I say amen. I'm still going to be really nice. You be nice. Keep it nice. Keep it very nice. Keep it nice. I hear keep it nice, but be you. So I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to, yeah. So we're careful with who we invite. I support people. I believe in people. Everybody needs a chance, Shande. Yeah. But you just can't come up in here anyway because we're going to see that you anyway. And we're going to clap and we're going to support you, but we know we're not going anywhere because the unclean can't lead us into the presence of a holy God. It's not, you just, it's not happening. I don't care how much we make it look like, act like it, fake, fake like it. It's, nothing's happening. Okay? And so it was important for me apostolically to address that because the day is really coming to an end where the performance is only a performance. We want a performance of God. We don't want your flesh performance. 
that ain't going to do nothing but increase our need for intercession to clear our atmosphere again. Y'all hear what the Spirit is saying, read between all the lines. You get what I'm saying? Now, for me, I have to address it. Why? Because I'm in a region with people who think it's okay to masquerade and put on their costume and come to church and think that God is not watching. In this house, he's here. I don't know where you go to church. But this house measures. Somebody say amen. Okay. An apostolic house is a house of measurement. You could have cut up in every other church you were at. Go to a church with a real apostle and watch God jack you up. Watch him. Because the angels that are stationed here are too closely connected and akin to what God wants to have done in the earth. All right? I'm not going to teach about angels either. But sometimes indiscriminately, they will issue their own judgment. Ask Zacharias. Gabriel came to announce to him that Elizabeth was going to get pregnant. He asked a question. I thought it was a valid question, but he asked a question. And then the angel judged him and shut his mouth. He said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Most High God. He was like, how dare you question what I just said? He struck him dumb so that he couldn't talk. The Bible doesn't say God told him to do it. He just did it. So then that means angels, as a part of God's supernatural tribunal, have the right to issue edicts that affect our lives because their commitment is not to us emotionally. It's only to the sovereign's throne. That's it. Okay? Same thing happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had a vision and understood what was going on. He said, this is by the decree of the watchers. Somebody say amen. That's another dimension or another area of God's supernatural archons that govern and oversee what happens on the earth. The job of the watchers is to watch the law and look for violations of the law in the earth. They are their own tribunal. And they will judge you. Nebuchadnezzar lost his kingdom, not because the sovereign said so, because the watcher said so. They're like, sovereign, we got you. You sit there, you take your rest. Let the angels worship you. We got the earth. We're patrolling it. He acting up, bam, he's no longer, we're going to turn him into another man. He's going to be like a beast in the field. Okay? All right? So when we deal with apostleship, am I making y'all see it bigger than just the person with two churches under them? That's the definition in Connecticut of an apostle. You got two churches under you. What is under you? What is that? What does that mean? That's what they say here. How many churches you got? Oh, you got two. Oh, you an apostle. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of my face. All right, let me go. Somebody say the notes. Stay, stick with the notes, Perlo. Perlo, stick with the notes. All right. <laughs> I need some glasses. Okay, the Ecclesia, called out ones, a legislative assembly, intrinsic governmental system in order established to superimpose itself on the failing governmental system in order of the world, or more specifically, the place where the Ecclesia is established, okay? So when we are building this, this is what I want you to see. We are building an apostolic network that in essence becomes its own global church body. Y'all get that? Okay? We're building a global church body. So this apostolic network in and of itself becomes a global church body. All right? Now let me show you something, and I was just thinking about this, uh, concerning denominationalism. Because when we think about denominations, most of us think what? Throw, throw out some ideas. You think denomination, what do you think? 
speak, not just names, but think about what it means. He said hats. You said division. Perfect. Long dresses. She's from the PAW. Finance. Doilies. That's all y'all think. I want y'all to think a little bit deeper. Thank you. So he said division. She said doctrine. That's the PAW. Come on. You're not saved until what? Come on, PAW. Get free. Jesus only speaking. Well, you know, we baptize in Jesus' name over here. But go ahead. Sacraments. Huh? Legalism. All right. This, that's, that's where I'm trying to go. Y'all like convention. Talking about hats and stockings. This is convocation. Right? So when we think the, the negative things that usually come up when we think about a denomination is division, legalism, control, religion, manipulation, all of this demonic stuff, right? To my same end, say yes. All right, this is what I want you to consider. I'm a church historian. I study church history because if we don't know where we've been, we definitely don't know where we're going, right? So I got to study it. Church history, let me show you something about every major denomination. Number one, the majority of the Pentecostal denominations that are alive today, the majority of them were born out of the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in California, all right? So I want you to, number one, understand that. That means they were birthed out of a legitimate move of God in the earth, more specifically in this nation. That's the Church of God. That's the Church of God in Prophecy, which came from the Church of God. It's the Church of God in Christ. It's the Assemblies of God and some of them other ones, the PAW, the UPC, all of those major denominations were born out of a legitimate move of God, okay? Y'all got that? All right. That means that in every denomination that God authored, at some point there was a truth that they were charged with emphasizing and reintroducing to the world, okay? Now, what makes it a denomination is usually when that truth, they gather people and rally an organization around the truth that they have been charged to reintroduce. Okay? This is where it becomes demonic. When we say we hate you and you're not saved because you don't have our word, that's demonic. That's divisive. Okay? But if you just stay in the place of the revealed truth that you're supposed to give and learn how to interface and correlate and respond and interact with other movements, then the body can work together in unity, okay? So let me tell you from God's mindset what a benefit is to a denomination. Ready for this? Ready for this? Y'all ain't ready, okay? Uh, biblically, first century church operated under the auspices of an apostolic council. Do you all realize that? Okay? So there were multiple churches, there were multiple house churches, there were different leaders, but they were all subjected to, y'all got to hear this and say this with me, say all subjected to, they were all subjected to the authority of the apostolic council. So you have a house church, Priscilla and Aquila, but if there's an issue, we're going to the apostle James. Okay? Gentiles are getting saved. We didn't know salvation was for them. We thought it was just for the Jews. We got to figure out what's going on. The apostolic council convenes and says it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. 
So now the council has a seat where the Holy Spirit comes to dialogue with them about what should take place. We're not going to impose on you anything more than this. Don't do anything with idolatry. Stay away from eating blood. Don't do anything. Sacrifice any idols. Flee sexual immorality and remember the poor. So the Gentiles are being saved. You do not have to follow Judaism. All right? Somebody please, please tweet that to all of these Pentecostals with these yarmulkes and these talits and going to church on Saturday and, and eating kosher meal. We're not imposing anything else on you. Okay? Than this. Oh, but we the true Jews. Okay. We'll get there. Shonda. Shonda. It's a religious spirit. It's connected to Jezebel. Yeah. All right? Are y'all listening? All right? So there was an apostolic council. So that means God never intended that the church would operate without a governing system, number one, that could settle all of the matters that need adjudication. Can I present to you that some of the concept of all of these individual independent churches is a part of an antichrist system because they're not accountable, they're not in divine order, there is nobody that can bring correction, and every man does what is right in his own eyes, and the Bible says the end of that is always destruction. Okay? So there has to be, in any legitimate move of God, a consortium of apostolic leaders who for that body can come together and decide what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. has to be. It's biblical divine order. Okay? So this is the benefit of what they would call a denomination. You ready? You have, in, in large cases, millions of people that subscribe to an ideology and are submitted to a governing system. Do you realize how easy it is for God to move the seven million members of the church of God in Christ? You realize how easy it is? Bishop Blake only needs to stand up and say, we now accept and will ordain women bishops. Seven million people just changed. One decision. I know it's divisive, I know it's legalistic, I know it's skirts, I know it's hats, I know it's hot stockings in the summer, but the benefit to the kingdom is that we don't have to send a mass email to every individual church and network trying to get y'all on par with what God said. Okay? So do you see why the enemy wars against people coming together and galvanizing their forces and their strength? It's too easy for God to do what he needs to do in a movement of people. Okay? So what we are going to have to do, we're not building a denomination. I'm not looking for the district elders over the east and and, and, and missionaries over the West. We're not, we're not trying to build a denominational structure, but as a network, we have to understand that it's not just a loose-fitting uh, loose glee club. You pay your dues, you get to come to the party. That's not what we're building. It's an apostolic agency in the earth with an assignment, with a very specific vision from God that I believe that he is going to pull people together so that we can connect and we can build and we can take over. Y'all have to have that same mind, though. Okay, Let's look at some of the major contemporary networks that we have going on. Matthew Stevenson, you can't think about network and not think about Dr. Stevenson's network. Guess what? Can I tell you one thing? They all on the same page. Y'all wake up. It's too, I ain't, I'm not boring you yet. Somebody say amen. They're all on the same page. 
they are all on the same page. There is no Anwa to the second power. They're all Anwa. Let that sit. I call that oxtails. You got to marinate the oxtails. I do it in my crock pot. Got to marinate them. Don't cook oxtails fast. They got to fall off the bone. And you have to let them sit in the seasoning overnight before you put it in the crock pot for eight hours. It has to marinate so that the bone has the seasoning. So after the meat's gone and you suck on the bone, you can still taste all of the flavor. That's how I cook oxtails. You got to let this marinate. Y'all, listen. You don't see people in Anwa and at Global United Fellowship. Do you? I got some ex-Anwa people in here. Now, I didn't say who y'all was. See, you just exposed it. They not in uh, uh, Church of God in Christ and uh, Anwa. So we have to think like this as builders. What are we building? Okay, what are we building? And if God is calling you at some point to lead your own network, what seed are you sowing? Because you're determining the harvest you're going to meet, reap. How committed are you to what you have committed to? Because you are now measuring the level of the people who will commit to you. <laughs> you don't know how difficult it is to build with people who are double-minded until you try to build it yourself. Yeah, you my apostle, but so are all these other three people over here. Who's getting the money? Because all of them ain't getting it. You ain't sowing in all of them. Yeah. You're not going to everybody's convocation. If it's all in the same week, somebody won't see you. Y'all see what I'm saying? So we have to have a mindset that says, if this is the will and intention of God to build a network, which it is, then we got to be all in. We got to be 100% in. That's difficult, but you got to be 100% in because we can't build it if people are not focused on the building. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Okay? Shande. In God's mind, I'm going to say something good and then I'll be done because my time is up. Almost. Who will the leaders of his nation and political party be? Christ's commission the already established office of apostleship to do it. This would be the responsibility of the apostle. So we look at the praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, of apostleship, this is what it is. Number one, to indoctrinate his nation with his culture, his laws, his rules, his regulations, and his beliefs from a governmental standpoint. So that's what apostles do. You should be able to look at apostles and see the culture of the kingdom of heaven in them in flesh. You should be able to see the laws, the rules, and the regulations of God in the apostleship. Uh-oh. How many of y'all are kingdom citizens? She's like, that's a trick question. I'm not waving. No, 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 no. Come on. How many were kingdom citizens? Whew. How many of us left the church and now we in the kingdom? Y'all know y'all said it. Stop playing. I'm not, I'm not in the church age. I'm in the kingdom. <laughs> Can I tell you, you don't leave the church to become the kingdom. Can I tell you why? 
Number one, Jesus announced the kingdom before the church was ever born. The church comes after the kingdom. Y'all don't like that? The Bible. When I leave the Bible, Jesus announced, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The church wasn't born to the book of Acts. So in God's mind, the establishment of the church is a progression of the kingdom, not a detraction from it. It's a progression. <laughs> okay? The church brings definition to a certain arm of the kingdom's activity in the earth. Just take it. I'm not lying. Okay? So this is what the apostles have to do. They indoctrinate the nation of Christ with the culture, the laws, the rules, the regulations, and the beliefs of Christ. Number two, they teach and develop the nation of Christ in his spirituality. The infilling of the Holy Spirit, the release and manifestation of spiritual gifts, impartations, and anointings. Paul the Apostle said, I long to come to you that I might impart into you some spiritual gift. What? Not so you could have goosebumps in high church, but so that you could be established. So they had all of the Torah. They had all of the law and the prophets. They had the newly comprising uh, or being written New Testament. But he said their establishment was still contingent on him as an apostle releasing spiritual impartation, which meant they couldn't be established without it. Okay? So apostles have been charged to develop the nation of Christ in his spirituality. This is how we can weed witchcraft out of the church. Because we realize that all spirituality began with God, not with the devil. Okay? So you don't have to masquerade as a witch in a church. Just be delivered and connect to real spiritual power. You don't have to be in the church going to visit psychics and doing tarot card readings and going to participate in santeria and brujeria rituals in the church. In the church, you killing pigeons and animals on altars looking for spiritual power and then coming to worship with the saints. You don't have to deceptively be involved in that kind of activity. Y'all hear me? I feel like I'm hitting a vein. Let me back up. We develop and coordinate the nation's military efforts, which unite both the human and the divine. I'll just give you the references. Revelation 19 and 10 and 22 and 9. Okay? And that's where the angel says to the apostle John, who was in a transfigured moment of visitation, don't worship me. He said, I'm your fellow brethren in the struggle. I'm a steward of the mysteries of Christ just like you are. Don't worship me. Worship him because the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. All right? So he was so confused by the apparition of the angel that he thought the angel was Christ and needed to be worshipped. The angel had to identify to him, I'm not Christ. Don't worship me. I'm your brother. The angel identified himself with the apostle as a colleague, okay? So then that more than establishes for us the reality that what we are doing in this world, we have supernatural counterparts in the angelic realm that are doing the same thing in that world, okay? And they are our brothers. So that means that when we are engaging in things that pertain to the spirit, that there has to be a collaboration between us and the spiritual hosts of God, all right? Is that good? I can't stay there too long, but that's, that's the point, all right? We have to um, develop 
and coordinate the nation's military efforts for the acquisition of souls, territories, spheres, systems, and ultimately kingdoms. Revelation 11 and 5 says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. All right. Ultimately, that is what we do. Fast forward. Uh, we guard his nation. We protect the ecclesia. So we guard the nation. Say guard the nation. We protect the flock. And we enforce his policies. All right. This is 1 Timothy 1 and 20. Paul made it emphatically clear that he turned Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan for the destruction of their body so that their souls could be saved. They were blasphemers. They were stirring up junk in the church. And the apostles' judgment was that the church was better off without them physically being alive in the earth. And so he said his concern was that if they continued to live, that their eternal soul would be at stake. So the apostle gave Satan permission to destroy their bodies so that their souls at that present state still belong to the Lord so that they could wind up with him eternally. Number one, that's loaded. Number one, it means you can lose your salvation. We already know that in Hebrews 6. Once saved, always saved is demonic. Don't believe that. It's not true. Your salvation is not just about God loving you as a father. How could a loving father accept you and then throw you away? He won't throw you away, but you can walk away. Yeah, you can walk away for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay? He doesn't send anyone to hell. He's not willing that anyone should perish. There's nothing in him that wants anyone in hell. Scripture says it. Will they go? Yep, because hell enlarges itself daily. Yeah, that's not his choice. That's your choice. Yeah. Someone say amen. All right. So the apostle has the authority as the representative of the Godhead in their sphere to make these calls. I don't think I've ever had the ability to send anyone to hell or to get the devil to kill them. I've had people that I was just like, Lord, I just know that if you just remove them, we would be able to do the work of the kingdom better. I'm just, I'm convinced of it. And then you hear the Lord knocking on your heart, talking about how merciful he was to you and how much he loved you through your mess and how much he kept you when you didn't want to be kept. And then you see, he starts talking all of that and you're like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Save him, Jesus. Deliver him, Jesus. I don't know. Paul must have had a severe covenant with God that he could make that negotiation and the devil come snatching people about the earth. That's powerful. I'm trying to get to his level. Like, God, you're too nice. Bro. I could, we could fix some of this stuff down here. For your glory. <laughs> Funerals for your glory. <laughs> okay? But part of this disposition is the apostle's job. Now, watch it. I want you to get it. The apostle's job to guard the ecclesia. You're a troublemaker and you're messing up the stabilization of the flock, you've got to go. Okay? 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul said, you got this man in your church committing the kind of sin that's not even named amongst the Gentiles. He said, he's in here sleeping with his father's wife. He said to the church, he rebuked the church, he said, Y'all should have been grieving and praying that this person be removed from your midst. Y'all sitting at the table eating with them. 
Paul said, when you're present with my spirit, because I've already passed judgment on him, put him out of the church. He don't have enough sense to know you can't sleep with your father's wife and be a part of the ecclesia. He said, I've already passed judgment. Put him out. That wasn't strike one, strike two, strike three. It was he's got to go. See, okay, y'all see that? Y'all, y'all see? We're not used to the apostolic mindset and paradigm. The pastor says, but you got to love everybody through their mess. The apostle says, no, you're going to ruin this flock. You got to go. God's nation is better off without you. The crazy thing is this, heaven backed the apostle up. So now that tells us something about the mind of God. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is full of love. He has tons of forbearance. But even God will say enough is enough. And a lot of times, watch this, you're not going to like it, he'll say that through the apostle. Okay? Am I saying amen? They officiate over the nation's worship. They develop the understanding of the priesthood and the kingship of the citizens of Christ's nation. For the apostle, the key thing is that the true and living God is the one worshipped. All right? For the apostle, the key thing is that the true and living God is the one worshipped and that the souls of the people actually belong to him. They perpetuate and expand his kingdom by ensuring that new conversions take place. They develop the body into maturity so that it can facilitate all of the Lord's desires for it. Second Corinthians 11 and 2, Paul said, I have betrothed you to one husband. So his position apostolically is really on the outside of the church as one whose charge is to make sure the church is right for Jesus. Okay? So my saying amen. I'm going to say one part again. For the apostle, the key thing is that the true and living God is the one worshipped. Okay? Now this is what y'all got to watch. You got to watch. Because Jezebel is not just a control spirit. So stop calling everybody that you think is controlling Jezebel. That's not, it's not just control. It's not just intimidation. Okay? Jezebel's intention is the diversion of worship. Study her. Her intention was to displace Jehovah from the nation of Israel and to enthrone Baal as the deity over the nation. Okay? It's not just control. It's not just intimidation. It's the diversion of worship. So this is why, listen to me, y'all, you have to pay attention to worship forms when they are introduced into your congregation. Because if the Holy Spirit of God did not author it, whatever deity that authored the worship style is the one showing up in the midst of that worship. I don't mind jumping around on the stage, but what is it? Because if it's a distraction from the worship of Jehovah, whatever spirit whispered in your ear and told you it was all right for you to do that with skin-tight jeans and all of your body parts flailing around in them as much as they could possibly move, and everybody's attention is on that and not God's glory, that's a worship form that we cannot adopt into the worship of Jesus Christ. Because another deity inspired it, perhaps the same one that told you to squeeze into them clothes. Jezebel's intention is to divert worship. 
I don't worship. And I, I, I was really nice yesterday. I said a little bit of it, but I was trying to be nice. I didn't want to offend the people or the guests or to think that I was throwing off on them because I wasn't really. I was just establishing a precedent. But imagine this. You in the bed with somebody all Saturday night or maybe for five minutes on Saturday night. I don't know which, how would you flow. And then you come up in here on a Sunday morning lifting up what you are presuming to be holy hands. Who do you think in the supernatural is responding to that worship? Is it going to be Jehovah or the deity that you was just with in the bed with the person? I've been in churches. I lift my hands up to worship and I say, God, what is this tingling in the atmosphere? Oh, it's whatever spirit is in the worship leader being projected on the people. God, that's not glory. That's uncleanness. That's taintedness. I know this is it's not what y'all came for. So the apostles and the prophets have got to sift through that. We have to say that's not the worship of Jehovah. That's not true worship. That's not holy worship. Come up out of that mood of sensuality. I, I'm hard on my musicians all the time. I'll tell them in a minute, that's not, we're not shedding, this is intercession. Come up out of that shed and give me a sound that sounds like intercessory prayer. I'll tell them in a minute, that worship that sounds like jazz, give me something that sounds holy like heaven. Cut all of that bass out, give me them strings. Take me into an atmosphere that sounds like God. Because if they've been grooving, and mo the majority of them don't, but if they have been grooving and shedding with their boys and they've been in their little groove and that's what they've been doing all weekend, you're not bringing that up in here on a set. This is the house of the Lord. This, is so, this sound has to create a space for God's throne that the Bible says has wheels of fire on it to come and sit amongst us. We're not at the club. Music always brings you back to the place it was created and the intention it was created for. That's not worship. You got to discern that because Jezebel is looking for a way to be worshiped in the place of the Most High in your midst. That's why she tries to dominate. When I say she, it's a spirit. It can be a male or female. But that's why she tries to dominate areas that pertain to the supernatural in your church. You want to know where the Jezebelic people are in your church? Look on the praise team and look in the intercessory prayer ministry. That's where they are. That's where they are. Or in your prophetic team. You got three places to look. Prophetic team, intercessory prayer team, or worship. Anything that engages the supernatural, Jezebel has to infiltrate. Because she wants to be the guardian over the spheres of the supernatural that surround your ministry. She'll try to gain influence with your key people. That's her job. She'll talk to them, give them little prophecies that sound like they come in the past, pray things over them that sound accurate and on point, and will build literally a confederation right in your ministry. So by the time she stands up and says, God says the pastor is out of order and in error and God is no longer with them, she got a whole group of people that's willing to follow her because all of her prophecies for five years have come to pass. Which? That's how it works. 
and Jezebel will come into your church and think that they're insidious, but not in a church full of real prophets. We see, we, listen, baby, listen. We see, and I'm watching. I, I, I watch. And some people don't come into your church as a Jezebel, but they'll leave as one. Because they'll get wounded, they'll get offended, they'll feel rejected, they'll feel abandoned, they'll feel ostracized, they will develop aughts with the ministry, they will develop offenses with the leadership and with the people. And next thing you know, when that spirit comes to undo your ministry, it finds the environment in that individual that is conducive to the plot that it wants to launch against your ministry. You got to watch the offended people in your leadership. I'll tell you in a minute, my leaders don't get to be offended. If I think you're offended, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to confront it. And I'm going, we going to talk this out until I feel like it's not there anymore. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you confess. If I feel like it's there, it's there. You clear? You are right now? Your heart okay? Your disposition looked a little funny. Your body language looked funny on Sunday. Let's figure out what's going on with you. Because you influence too many of our people for you not to be right. Hmm? Leaders? Your people in your inner core have to be 100% diehard you. And I taught them, and I said it has to be gut level you. It has to be feelings oriented you. They can't like you mechanically. It has to be emotional. You got to really like me and love me to lead in this house. You got to, y'all, gut level, gut level. One of the first things my wife and I said when we were starting this church nine years ago, we sat down with our leadership team, the majority of them are still here. I said, y'all have to love us enough that if I call you and say, I'm tempted to commit adultery that you don't go find another pastor. I only got one amen. See, I got to figure out where y'all at. I said, we should be able to call this group and say, pray for us, pray with us. This is what we are going through, and you not leave. And not use it against us. Your heart has to be connected to us enough to love us enough that you stay even when the machine makes you think you ought to leave. If you don't have that kind of heart-level connection to a leader, then you ought not serve there. Quit. Today. Give them your text message and your note, because most of y'all don't have no meetings. You just send a text. Pastor, the Lord has led me on to another ministry. What's my one response? Who knows my one response to that? Godspeed. I'm not having a discourse with you. I'm not having a conversation. One word, and I don't even put a period behind it. Godspeed. Because you were never there to begin with. This is hard, I know, but I'm helping the, the pastors out. If the sheep just endure it and bear with us for a moment, helping the pastors out. No, 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 no. You get that little thing inside, that like right in here, when you get around people on your, on your team, that little thing, that, that's not lying. That's not lying. No, there's an issue. No, there's an issue. And as guardians of the flock, guardians of the ecclesia, apostles have to know what's going on in people. There are people that will come to your church just to divide it because they think they can do what you're doing better than you. 
So they will come and try to build their own ministry off of what you have sacrificed and labored to build. You don't got enough sense to go find your own people. Nobody's found, you done took five steps, look back, nobody's behind you. So the next thought is let me go infiltrate a church that has a follower and a leader. No, ma'am, we're not doing that. Our lives are on the line for this ministry. We have fought demons. We have fought principalities. We've had to overcome sicknesses. We've gone through financial distress. We've gone through marital distress. We've gone through family issues. Our leaders have been hit with all kinds of things. We have people that have had to go through divorces on our leadership team. And I warned them. I warned them when we started this church. I said, this is not a regular church. This is an apostolic ministry. I said, and we are in this region to combat ancient territorial forces. I said that there are religious altars, there are uh, witchcraft covens, there are satanic groups of people that are going to do nothing but try to assault this kind of ministry because none of these other churches are even addressing what they're doing. Right? Is that a baby or a demon? Oh, that's a little boy? Break the intimidation off the ministry technicians. Tell the people where they should sit. Thank you. Right? What was that? You not, I told them, I said, this is not the ordinary house. You saw how I went right back in it? I said, I'm telling you right now, leaders, I said, you're going to get hit with the worst case scenario. I said, you are. I said, this is an apostolic house. We're on the front line. We only had 20 people in the first prayer meeting. Ten of them was people that I had already put my eye on as leaders. I said, you're going to get hit with the worst stuff. I said, so number one, your salvation has to be intact. Because any open door the enemy can find, he's going to find it. I'm telling you. I said, you got to be prepared to stand. They've gone through divorces. They've gone through miscarriages. They've gone through all kinds of depressions and oppressions. And I had to keep reminding them, I know you just lost your husband, but this is not about you. This fight you're in, it's not about you. It's about the enemy trying to move you out of a position on a wall. Okay? So you have to prepare your leadership. That's why they got to be ride or die you. We're taking for granted that they're ride or die Christ, right? Because they're in church trying to serve in church. Like we're going to take for granted that you're actually saved. But beneath that, you got to be ride or die those leaders because you have to be connected to that vision in a way that says when all hell breaks loose because it will, I'm not going to move. You will be able to count on me. Okay? And that has to be proven. I got to rebuke you and watch you not flinch. You can't flinch. You can't take a three-week sabbatical because I said something that you didn't want to hear. Because that means that you are not worthy to be a pillar in this house. The weight of the house can't rest on you. You're too emotional. You got to be able to be cut and stay in position. Because you have no part in me if I can't circumcise you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tight. Mm. 
You don't have to submit until there's a contest in your will and the leader's will. All y'all running around, I'm submitting, I'm submitting. You're not submitted yet until we have an argument and a fallout. I, I, I don't know your submission yet. I don't know your submission until this is really what you want to do and you really feel like God told you to do it and this is what you're poised and positioned to do and I say, don't do it. Now we'll see if you're submitted. Because submission means that you take your will. Oh, Lord, it's tight. <laughs> submission means you take your will and place it under the will of someone else. I don't got to follow you. I'm following God. Well, how do you follow God without submitting to delegated authority? The Bible says you can't even love him and hate the brother that you see every day and love the God that you can't see. So what makes you think you can follow him and usurp authority over people that he put in position to lead you? The book of James says the pastor has to give account to God for what? For your soul. So when God has an inquisition about your soul, he don't even ask you. He asks your leader. When I leave this Bible, leave me. He doesn't even ask you about the disposition of your soul. Your pastor gives account to him about your soul. What is your soul? Your mind, your will, and your emotions. Why is prophet jacked up today? They have to give an account. And it's not always a question. It's a measurement. He'll measure them to see if their leadership has impacted her in a negative way and then calls them on account. That's not about you. God entrusts leadership for a purpose. Come on, y'all. I know I'm combating something in a generation where everybody's a leader with nobody following them. I follow God by myself. Okay, Paul. He definitely had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus Christ, calling him into ministry. Didn't he? On the road to Damascus. The sovereign himself came and visited him face to face, knocked him off of the horse, blinded him for three days, had a whole conversation. Why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you? I'm Jesus Christ, the one you're persecuting. It's hard to kick against the bricks. Right? Face to face. He said, now go to the street called Straight. I'm going to send somebody there to explain to you what you're supposed to do. I'm not even going to finish the conversation with you because I have somebody anointed that's already in position that's going to tell you what you're supposed to do for me. Face-to-face -face encounter. Jesus blinded him, but it took Ananias to, to heal him. Why couldn't Jesus just heal him? Because he had delegated authority. What did Paul do after that experience? We see him in Acts 13 subjected to the authority of the house. He was sitting under the prophets and the teachers in a season of fasting and waited for the Holy Spirit to speak to them. And as they ministered unto the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I have called them. And when they, the prophets and teachers, laid hands on them, they sent them. Jesus appeared to him, commissioned him, yet he needed the prophets and teachers at the church in Antioch to lay hands on him to send him. And what did they send him to do? Not paulsministry.org. He was Barnabas' armor bearer. He got anointed after seeing Christ to be Barnabas' armor bearer. Travel companion. You grab my bags as I go minister. Am I making a point? You got an itch, and you done started a whole church. You itching. 
not even realizing it's because you change your detergent. <laughs> you itching, and you're going to start a ministry. Itching. After that, 14 years at least, he was in the wilderness. 14 years at least. He didn't confer immediately with flesh and blood, according to Galatians 1, and he didn't have to. Because I told you, when you're an apostle, God makes it clear to you from the beginning. You know. He said God separated him from his mother's womb for apostleship, according to Galatians 1. We know that. He didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood, but he did. He was sent, prophets and teachers, Antioch. After 14 years, he goes back up to what? The apostolic council. So there we go back to centralized government that has the responsibility to oversee all of the churches. They have a conversation. Peter, James. James is actually the head of the church, the chief apostle, if you will. Have a conversation. They perceived after they heard what he did for 14 years. Somebody say 14 years. Not 14 days, not 14 months. 14 years what he did. They said, well, we perceive that the grace that is on us for apostleship is also on you. You don't ordain a prophecy. But they always told me I was going to be an apostle, so uh, I'm ready for the service. Where's your measurable fruit? Oh, he's a special needs child. Oh, okay. That's why he has on the helmet. You don't ordain a prophecy. They always told me, the, the, yea, the Lord shall say unto thee, for surely I have called ye, ye even into the earth for such a time as this, and thou shalt be an apostle to many nations. And then you bring that word to your leadership. Say, I'm ready to be ordained as an apostle. No following, no fruit, no work, no strategia, no victory, no overcoming, no defeating principalities, no apostolic rank. No apostolic anointing, no miracles, no healing, no deliverance, but you ready for paper. So they perceived that the same grace was on them, that was on them was on him. They gave him the right hand of fellowship and sent him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Somebody say, it's all right to do the work. Do the work. Let the validation be that the work is complete. Okay. You don't graduate from medical school and get your paper as a doctor. You get your degree, but you have a residency for a number of years. You got to do some surgeries. You got to accidentally kill some people and then cover it up. Like it's a whole process before they certify you as a full-fledged doctor that is no longer just a resident in training. Y'all barely graduating from school trying to get ordained and licensed as a brain surgeon. Can we, can we just turn it around? Can we, can we do that? All right, I'm, I'm winding down because y'all getting, I'm getting people mad now. I don't want you to be mad. We just starting. Okay. Apostles combat the inherent apostasy in every generation. Time, the adulteration of truth. Faddish religion 
sin and the archaic forces of darkness and the like all eventually begin to take their tolls on God's people, okay? Over time, it always happens that way. So God has to resaturate the earth with apostleship to bring everything back to where it should be. The apostle, uh, for the apostle, it becomes necessary to wrestle God's purchased possession out of the pit of all of those things and return them back to the true and living God to incite again in them the true worship and service of Yahweh. All right? Ephesians 3 and 5 says apostles are stewards over the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 says the same thing. Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostle along with the prophet are the foundational gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.28 says that the governmental rank and order is that the apostle is first, proton, which means chief. All right? We deal with the apostle's calling. Let me give you these scriptures. Y'all just write them down. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 3. I highlighted it and told myself, make sure you read it. I'm not going to read it. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. All right? These are things that tell you what the apostles' ministry and their calling actually looks like. 1 Corinthians 9, number 1. Let me just read this section here. All right? I'm almost done. I got 23 minutes. A vivid, life-changing encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ provides the platform for the apostles' ministry and assures them that the risen Lord, the lion and the lamb, really controls all of his created worlds. Apostolic faith is energized by their intimate and tangible, say intimate and tangible interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes indispensable when the trials of their calling become overwhelming because they will face off with the gods of this world. Apostles face off with the fallen deities and the gods of this world. It's what apostles do, and it is why, or it is, which is why apostolic faith does not rest upon that which is seen. The sight of the unseen impresses upon them more deeply than it does the rest of the body of Christ. So when we deal with apostleship, this is why I like talking Apostle Tory all the time, because for the apostle, the unseen realm and world is more real to us than this world. Okay? It just is. Because we have experienced time and time and time and time and time again how real the supernatural realm actually is and how it overlaps with this world, all right? So as ambassadors of the sovereign's throne, who is spirit and his kingdom is spirit, we are inducted into those realms and into those spheres. I had an encounter leading up to the summit, which is why I know this summit is so significant in the mind of God. Um, it was a couple of days ago. I was caught up in a transfixed place and the angel of the Lord that I now can identify was the angel of the Lord came and got me, okay, and brought me into this room that had a very interesting apparatus. The, it was this apparatus that had chairs there that almost looked like thrones, but whatever it was. And so I was sat down in a throne, and the angel grabbed my hand. And when the angel grabbed my hand, the apparatus began to spin very, very vividly and wildly, but then I got plunged deeply, I mean deep, as far deep as you could go, into this abyss of water, and then I shot back up. When I came back up, I noticed that all of my garments were completely different. So I was glistening with this white, uh, very bright, 
raiment of clothing. And so this angelic being um, began to instruct the people that were with me. And I knew that he was telling them about the changing of my garments and what it meant and how they were to interact and interface with it. And so I had to send all of that to Bishop Bismarck. I said, now this one is taking me for a loop. What's going on? He said, Randall, this is your baptism into a new world of apostolic authority. He said, you've got to manifest. This is your season, blah, blah, blah. He said all that stuff. Somebody say amen. All right. So those kinds of experiences. So when I woke up out of that, um, the anointing was tangible. I could feel it. Something changed inside of my being. Somebody say amen. All right. Those are the things that have furnished and supplied the weight of glory and anointing that we're experiencing this week. Because it is a new world of apostolic authority. Now, why would God need to put me in a new world of apostolic authority? Good question. Because this is our first convocation of this magnitude. And I've got apostles and prophets and apostles and people that we're leading that represent other territories, other regions, other principalic uh, municipalities. And I'm coming here as an apostle during this week to preside over it. So the words that I'm speaking are not just for Gerard and Tory and Ale and, uh, and Lawrence and Jaquan. It's not just over you, but these words are literally addressing the angelic hosts that are assigned to your regions, addressing the hosts that are assigned to your churches, addressing the hosts that are assigned to your people, to your mantle, all right? Because Ephesians 3.10 says it is by the church, the organization of the ecclesia, which 1 Corinthians 12, 28 delineates, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to principalities and powers in heavenly places. All right? So although they are seated in heavenly places, they don't know what's going on until the organization and structure of the church discloses it. I said a lot. All right? Y'all got it? Y'all really got it? winding down again. Eternal kingdom realities persuade apostles to emphasize in their ministries that the entire religion and humanist conflict is not about people's faith in a dogma, ritual, religion, or spiritual ideology. It is emphatically that God convinces his apostles a question of whose God is God and who belongs to what God in the world? And what God takes possession of their soul in the hereafter? This is the entire campaign, what the entire campaign about is about with divine beings as seen in Jonah 1 and 6, Elijah's penetrating challenge to Israel in 1 Kings 18 and 21. All right? Jezebel's trying to install Baal as the God over the nation, Elijah as a fiery pre-New Testament apostle and prophet comes on the scene. He challenges the demonic altar. He challenges the demonic priesthood and the demonic prophetic group to establish Yahweh to maintain and perpetuate Yahweh's seat as the deity that governs that nation. That's what apostles fight with. Okay? You cannot deduce apostleship to dealing with church stuff. That's why we have pastors in our church. We have an executive pastor. We have a team of elders because there are some things I'm just not going to deal with because it's just not my office. 
okay? And if God summons you to an apostolic house, it means that he has put you in a place that is going to furnish and supply what is needed for you to maximize your maturity as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're not going to be a run-of-a-mill Christian just sitting there hoping and waiting for Jesus to come back, for Shiloh to come. That's not what apostolic Christianity is all about. You're getting a word, you're getting an empowerment, you're getting an anointing that is situating you in the spheres of your life and in society for absolute and total dominion wherever you go. Apostolic Christians are not waiting for a revival to bring sick people to their pastor to lay hands on them. Apostolic people got you in the bathroom at work on lunch break curing your cancer. They said, come here, baby, let me lay hands on you. That cancer, that's the spirit of infirmity, we're going to deal with that. That's apostolic Christians. Lord, help me. Right? That's what we're building in you. If you're sitting under an apostle, your ministry and everything is not centered around that apostle. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. Let me see anything else I need to say before we stop. The most pivotal piece of apostleship is that the Godhead has sent the messenger into a territory or sphere as the head of diplomatic relations and governmental authority. So in your realm, apostles, you are the head of God's diplomatic relation. Your region may not like you. The pastors might hate you. The church world may come against you. It does not change your seat. What you say in that region is what's going to happen. Period. If God sent you there in an apostolic capacity, that is your jurisdiction. Stop trying to buddy up with people that don't like you. They're never going to like you. Just do your job. Do your job. Be nice, be cordial, be diplomatic, because one of the trademarks of apostleship or ambassadorship is diplomacy. You have to be able to cause two hostile parties to come to a place of treaty. That's what your, that's what your office does. Get it? Sit at the table. Be involved in city council meetings. Be involved in the board of education meetings. Go sit in the chamber of commerce. Develop great relationships with the people who make the decisions in your territory, not just a whole bunch of old religious church people that don't got nothing else to do. Okay? Take your calling outside of the ecclesiastical realm and put it in the place where it matters because those are the people that are making decisions. Get your influence in those spheres. And then you sit there as the representation of the sovereign's throne. Am I teaching it all right? The representation of the sovereign's throne, and you interject his edicts and his directives, and it will go as you say. You hear me? Okay. Ah. An apostle is not a glorified pastor. Apostleship is not a promotion for a bishop. It is not the next rung on the ladder for the prophet. Every prophet wants to be an apostle. If all the prophets become apostles, where's the prophets? Prophets carry a sent one dimension. John the Baptist was sent. The word for sent there is apostolos, but he was a prophet. 
There are apostolic prophets. There are prophets that carry sent one dimension. But don't confuse that with the office of apostle. You may not be the embodiment of the Godhead's representative in the earth. You may not be that. You might be the mouthpiece of God. Be the mouthpiece. Say what he's saying. You can always tell the difference. Apostle doesn't have a lot of, they don't have to do a lot of talking. Prophets have to talk. That's your calling. You're supposed to prophesy. That's what you do. When God comes on you the strongest, what you feel like doing is saying something. That's a, that's a prophet. That's a healthy prophet. Apostles sit in authority. They sit in a seat. They sit in a seat. They decide things. Okay? We prophesy. We can. But we legislate and judge more than we prophesy. Okay? That's what we do. Shonda. Can I run through this list real quick? Write these scriptures down. This is biblical apostleship criteria. Stewards over the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, 9 through 13. Also, sufferings and persecution. If they are not attacking you, if you are not suffering, if they are not persecuting you, you're not an apostle. Period. You've got to suffer have to be persecuted for the sake of Christ not because of stuff you did for sake of Christ your obedience to Christ causes your unseen enemy to be roused against you okay because you're sitting there to displace demonic princes when an apostle comes into a region the demonic principalities are matched rank for rank that's how Paul could say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but we wrestle against principalities powers Rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Okay? The word for wrestle there is pale. In the Greek, it means a gladiator battle to the death. Okay? And you win the battle when you were able to successfully pin your opponent down and put your foot in his neck. Paul said his wrestling was against principalities. Okay? The only way he could wrestle with them is that they had to be equal. They had to be equal. Most church people do not deal with principality level warfare. They just don't. That's just the reality. They don't deal with principality level warfare. You still overcoming your gossiping demon. How are you going to deal with a demon that's assigned to a whole landmass? Blink of an eye, they could take you out. You're not dealing with that level of warfare. You're just not. It sounds grandiose to think you are, but you're not. Pastor, I was in intercession. He come out of the old shot. And the angel came because I was dealing with a principality. You don't even come to church on time. How are you dealing with a principality? How are you dealing with a principality? You don't even serve right under women's ministry. How you serve? You ain't find no principality. You're no threat to the kingdom of darkness. You're not even an asset to the kingdom of God yet. I say hard stuff. I know. It's jarring. It's meant to be jarring to make people think. That's why I do that. Make people think something. Because sometimes we get stuck in a rut of thought. Because your continual thoughts literally creates grooves in your brain. And it's sometimes it's hard to get out of it. So I say things that make people to shock them, to jump out of the groove so that they can create a new neural pathway and thought process. Okay? You're not an asset to the kingdom of God. You're not a threat to the kingdom of darkness yet. Uh, heavenly visions, Christ encounters, Acts 9, 3 through 8, 
2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. Acts 9, 3 through 8, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. Signs, wonders, miracles, authority, and power. Acts 3, 1 through 9. Signs, wonders, miracles, authority, power. Signs, wonders, miracles, authority, power. Apostles have to be able to move in that really on demand. Your prayer and your word should always materialize the manifestation of God's supernatural power in any situation. Always. Okay? Always. It's a different dimension of power because as an ambassador, you are, um, I said, the embodiment of God's government, but you have a special dispensation, dispensation of God's power that you wield almost at will. Almost at will. Peter said in Acts 3, go into the temple, meeting the beggar by the gate, beautiful, begging alms, asking alms of everyone. He said, silver and gold, I don't have. I ain't got no money to give you. I'm not giving you money. But what I do have, in other words, this is in my possession. He commanded him in the name of Jesus to get up. He didn't pray to God in the name of Jesus for God to heal him. He never asked for him to be healed. He dispensed what was in him to heal him. It's a different perspective. The apostle carries a reservoir of God's supernaturalness that they can interject in situations that are needed. Okay? And the seal, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2, of apostle people. There have to be a people. Paul said that you are the seal of my apostleship, okay? The word for seal there literally means badge, it means mark, it means insignia, okay? So that meant in the supernatural world, those people had an insignia that stated they were connected to Paul. We call it, and in today's language, DNA. You have a spiritual DNA, that belongs to an individual. But what it really is, if they are your apostle, you have their seal on you. You have their seal. So heaven recognizes it, hell definitely recognizes it, and people in the earth usually can detect it. They'll say, wait a minute, you've been, you go to Apostle Furlough's church? I knew it. I got phone calls. My people went to some event to pray. Uh, it was a gospel concert. They asked somebody to pray. One of my people got up to pray. Somebody called me and said, yep. One of, them, one of them furloughs was over here praying. It's a DNA. It's a mark. It's a sound. It's an atmosphere. It's an anointing. Okay? He said it's a look that he has. But it's a seal. That's why who your apostle is is very important. It's important to heaven. It's important enough that God puts a seal on you to say that that person is your apostle. Not just your favorite preacher. Not just the person you always want to be with. Not just always want to be under. Nope. That's why you under and you still sinking. Because you under. All right, that's it. I was going to go into something else that I just don't think y'all can handle in five minutes. Because it's a lot. I have to do it. Can I just give it, can I give it to you without commentary? Okay. And I'll, I'll charge you to research this, okay? So when we deal with apostleship in our generation right now, let me tell you what we're coming up against. There was a witch by the name of Alice Bailey. 
okay? Um, she was one of the proponents of the New Age movement. She was a theosophist in that she subscribed to the ideologies of a woman named Madame Guyon. Uh, not, not Madame Guyon, that's the wrong Madame. Madame Blavatsky. Madame Guyon was a mystic and a woman of God. Madame Blavatsky was the mother of the modern day New Age movement, okay? I'm going to give you something, Lord, I'm just praying that you cover all these people, their churches, their family, everything that's connected to them. So no backlash, no retaliation, no infiltration of the enemy's forces at all. Um, here we go. The United Nations, our United Nations, was birthed out of what was referred to as the League of Nations 70 years ago. So the original name for the United Nations was called the League of Nations 70 years ago. The principles upon which the United Nations was founded was based on the teachings of a key proponent of the New Age movement called Alice Bailey. She formulated six organizations under the name Lucifer's Trust to run with her teachings, which were inspired by her master. His name was Dewal Kool. He was a Tibetan monk that she would meet in an ascended state of meditation, okay? So he was a spirit guide that she met. He was a demonic deity that inspired all of her writings and her esoteric beliefs. The New York headquarters of the United Nations is the very site where Alice Bailey set up Lucifer's Trust and later called it Luce, Lucius Trust, all right? So I'm about to tell you something so that you can understand the war of apostleship and what we are fighting in this nation, what we are fighting in this generation. Y'all, please do not let the devil reduce what you believe into thinking that this is about arguments and speculations in church and people who don't like people in church and people who don't like you. That's not what our war is. Do you understand me? The God who rules the nation rules the people, okay? So we are at war with principalities that are trying to take over our nation, all right? Now, I don't know where you all are on the spectrum of politics. If you're an apostle or a prophet in this day, you need to be watching ABC and CNN. Get both perspectives and then judge somewhere in the middle what the Holy Ghost is actually saying. But you cannot be oblivious to things that are going on in the world around you. You can't do it. You have a responsibility as the mouthpieces of God to be able to clearly define and articulate how the enemy is moving in our nation, okay? This is a battle over deities and land. Y'all got it? I know y'all don't like President Trump. I know you don't like his administration. You have to pray for him anyway, so get over what you like and don't like about him because we're commanded to pray for those in authority, and the Bible says the result is so that we can live peaceably. All right. Don't get caught up in this factitious spirit that is trying to put us or pit us against one another. Black Democrats, evangelical Republicans, black Republicans. And we trying to decide which party God is endorsing. He's not endorsing either party. Both parties are filled with sin and corruption and a whole bunch of deception and mess. God is not a Republican. OK, these people that are sitting up there screaming, no abortion, no abortion, no abortion, no abortion. have probably had several. Okay, so the political party is exactly what it is. It's just a political party, all right? There are things that President Trump is going to do absolutely right because God put his hand on him to do them absolutely right. 
if God has to weave that through all of his sin and corruption and his racism and his prejudice, go for it because God does it through us every week in our churches. Y'all didn't like that, but he does. He overrides our flesh, our will, our propensities, and our proclivities to get his word and his anointing to his people. So why can't he do it in the White House with someone who never claimed to be a preacher or anointed or called? Shande. Okay? So the movements that he is making, some of this stuff is setting things up for the apocalyptic revelations that John talked about. God needs an agent that's going to make things point in that direction. He's using him to do it. Okay? This is cosmic, and it's way beyond Democrat or Republic. Okay? Republican. All right? Um, in the same year that this was founded, she married, Alice Bailey married a theosophist and 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason named Foster Bailey. They founded the Arcane Esoteric School and Triangles for Education, and these organizations have now been absorbed into the United Nations. So the entire construct of the United Nations is satanic. It is a satanic agenda, and it is founded on satanic principle. After the devastating effects of the world's greatest war, World War II, led by the world's greatest Christian nations, Germany, UK, and USA, a spiritual vacuum had been created, and the populations of Christian nations of Western Europe and America were now seeking for answers to the two world wars and the imminent danger of a face-off between two economic blocks which were hostile to one another, the socialist communist bloc and the capitalist bloc. The church could not answer, so they turned to the kingdom of darkness. Whole nations were traumatized. Whole populations of men were broken and destroyed. Families were shattered with loved ones having disappeared, died, or becoming severely maimed during the wars. Christian values could apparently no longer protect the world for the nations which had seemed to stand on them had contributed to the world's hitherto most horrifying destruction of life. So in other words, after World War II, all these nations said what we believed about God did not work. The devil was ready with a counterfeit that he had been preparing for a long time. Alice Bailey, this witch, who had been, uh, who had by and large been ignored, was now center stage. For a long time, she had been telling the world, listen to this, that Christianity had failed humanity. And Alice Bailey said that there is coming a new post-Christian era, a new age, which required a new world order. New world order. Look on your dollar bill. It is written right on the top. Okay? This is manufactured by a new age witch. In the early of 20th century, all of her messages were unimpressive to a world which was experiencing various levels of revival. But now after the wars, suddenly she seemed to be making sense. Bailey targeted children with her teachings in 1946. Somebody say 1946 who at that time were the ages of 10 and under. Now, those people that were subjected to her teachings at the ages of 10 and under in 1946 are the leaders and in the influential policy makers in the United Nations, in the International Money Fund, and in the Food and Agriculture Organization. People like Ted Turner, 
the media mogul, TNT, owns all of our broadcasting. Robert Mueller, who is an educationist, and the filmmakers and the TV producers. Now, I'm going to give you this, and I'm done. Okay? Somebody play something. Pastor Isaiah, can you play something real quick? Can you play something for me real quick? Thank you. She had a 10-point plan that was given to her by Dewal Kuhl, her ascended master that she met on the astral plane through transcendental meditation. This deity appeared to her and said, I will show you how to remove Christianity from the United States of America in 50 years. She wrote this in 1946. He gave her a 10-point plan and said, if you do this, this nation will no longer be Christian in 50 years. Ready? Here's the 10 points. Number one, he said, take God and prayer out of the education system. Change the curriculum to ensure that children are freed from the bondage of Christian culture. Because children go to school to be equipped to face life, they are willing to trust and they are willing to value whatever is given to them. If you take God out of the educational system, they will unconsciously form a resolve that God is not necessary for their life. They will focus on those things that the school counts worthy to be passed on to them, and they will look at God as an addition if they can afford his addition. You ready for this? Number two. Reduce parental authority over the children. Break the communication between the parent and child so that the parents do not pass on their Christian traditions to their children. Liberate their children from the bondage of their parental traditions. Take it down just a little bit. By doing this, number one, promote excessive child rights. In 1997, South Africa introduced child rights legislation, the UNICEF Charter. Today, a child is able to say to a parent, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be what you are telling me. Teachers cannot talk to children, and children can step up and say, I have my rights. Part B, abolish corporal punishment. Make it illegal for parents to physically chastise their children. This is in 1946. This deity is telling this woman, this is how you're going to change America. Part C, teachers are the agents of implementation. From workshops, teachers tell their children, your parent has no right to force you to pray or to read the Bible. You are yourself. You have your own right. You need to discover yourself. You have self-expression. You have self-realization. You have self-fulfillment. These are all of the buzzwords that you need to introduce. Don't that sound like today? Doesn't that sound like today in the church? Everything is about you. Even the worship songs are about you. They're no longer about God. They're no longer vertical. It's all about what God's going to do for me. He's going to do it for me. When did worship become about what God is doing for us? When did, I want to try to answer, when did worship come, become about what God is doing for us? You can acknowledge it, you can affirm it, you can declare it, but worship is vertical. It's, it's about him. Three, ready? 
destroy the Judeo-Christian family structure because it is oppressive and the family is the core of the nation. If you break down the family, you break the nation. Liberate the people from the confines of the Judeo-Christian family structure by A, promoting sexual promiscuity. Free young people to the concept of premarital sex. You cannot watch TV at 5 o'clock in the afternoon without a sex scene. And unfortunately today, it's a same-sex sex scene. Let them have free sex. Lift it so high that the joy of enjoying sex becomes the highest joy in life. Make them fantasize about it so that everybody will be proud to be seen as sexually active. Back in the day, it was embarrassing not to be a virgin. Today, it's embarrassing to be a, I mean, to be a virgin. Before, it was a sense of pride. I ain't never been touched. Now, everybody done touched me. Now you're getting that because you done been touched. It's contrary to the word which commands us to flee fornication. Part B of that, use, use the advertising industry, media, TV, magazines, film industry to promote sexual enjoyment as the highest pleasure in humanity. Have they succeeded? Have they done it? Absolutely. You cannot look at a commercial about getting your floors mopped without a half-naked woman. What that got to do with mopping the floor? Or Roto-Rooter? Or calling the plumber? Sexuality is the highest enjoyment. We have been ingrained to see it as the highest point of life. Four, if sex is free, make abortion legal and make it easy. Your Planned Parenthood was derived by a witch. Build clinics for abortion. Health clinics in school. If people are going to enjoy the joy of sexual relationships, they need to be free of the unnecessary fears associated with it. In other words, they should not be hampered with unwanted pregnancies. This is why your school clinic gives you free condoms. Have sex with no consequence. And they give you more than a few. That means do it a few times. Hopefully with a few different people. Number five. This is all to break down the Judeo-Christian uh, unit. Make divorce easy and make it legal and make people free from the concept of marriage for life. Do you know that in some of our states, adultery is still against the law? Did y'all know that it was once written in the law that if you were found as an adulterer, you could go to prison? I'll skip over all of that. Six. The deity said to her, break down the Judeo-Christian family unit by making homosexuality an, an alternative lifestyle. Alice Bailey preached over 65 years ago that sexual enjoyment is our highest pleasure. No one must be denied and no one must be restricted on how they can enjoy sexuality. People should be allowed in whichever way they choose, whatever they want, whether it is homosexuality, incest, bestiality, as long as both parties are in agreement. In the world today, so many laws have been made that promote homosexuality and give so much freedom to gay rights that at a time 
uh, will come when it is illegal for a preacher to mention homosexuality as an abomination in the eyes of God or to read scriptures publicly that talk about homosexuality. At the international scene, Western nations now sanction African countries that have resisted homosexuality with threats of withdrawing foreign aid and investments. Today, many churches marry gays and lesbians and they ordain gay priests. This is 1946. So just think about I Love Lucy and how it depicted the 50s in comparison to today and how this witch and her demonic prince were the key factors in shifting our entire nation. Number seven, debase art, make it run mad. Number eight, use media to promote and change mindsets. Number nine, create an interfaith movement. Promote other faiths, watch this and pay attention, to be at par with Christianity and break this thing about Christianity as being the only way to heaven. This is why the Pope, the current Pope, is sitting at tables with Jews and Muslims and him as the representation of Christianity saying, let's all get along. What you don't know about this Pope, some of you don't know, that he is the first Illuminati Pope we have ever had. Now, when I say Illuminati, I don't mean conspiracy theory, okay? The actual Illuminati was a derivative of the Knights Templar. You can research all of this. Knights Templar, they were a group. They considered themselves to be the Illuminated Ones. They eventually changed their name to the Society of Jesus, okay? So every Jesuit school is a part of the Society of Jesus. The Society of Jesus has as a philosophy world domination, And they believe that they are supposed to infiltrate any sphere, take on any uh, method that they have to, to infiltrate those spheres in order to put their agenda over and above whatever sphere they have infiltrated. This pope is the first pope from the Society of Jesus. He's the first Jesuit pope. Jesuits don't even believe in Catholicism like that. They have their own agenda for world dominion. They fake it to infiltrate it. He's the first one. This is Alice Bailey's point number nine. An interfaith movement that makes every other religious ideology on par with Christianity. Ten, get the governments to make all these things law and get the church to endorse all of the changes. I have a question for you. This was all written in 1946. Did she change this nation in 50 years, yes or no? Okay, everybody stand to your feet. 50 years, one witch with a principality has impacted all of our lives. So the question is, as we are reclaiming an apostate generation, does the Lord have at least one of us in here today that will partner with his agenda to reclaim this apostate generation? Can we reclaim this apostate nation? Can we reclaim an apostate church that doesn't even know it's apostate? I'm standing here as the lead servant of Ecclesia Global, and I'm telling the Lord, 
Father, you can have our agency. That we present it to you. That we are not playing church. We're not faking titles. We're not doing this to put money in our pockets. We're not just trying to control and dominate people, groups, and masses. We are not creating a cult driven by personality and charisma. We are not just trying to get wealthy and rich and make a name. We're not just trying to sleep our way into open doors and platforms. We're not selling out our soul to the highest bidder just to be on Word Network or TBN or some other TV station. We are saying, Father God, we are a people in the earth that have been gripped by your needs in the earth. And that you can have us. And that you can use us. And that you can commission us. I pray for your wisdom to lead your people. I pray for your wisdom on our executive team so that they can lead with your wisdom, the vision that you have placed on this place. The vision that you've given us. This movement is going to grow. It will encompass a multiplicity of nations. Father, I pray that we don't have a split. I pray that we don't have division. I pray that we don't have issues with ego and pride. I pray that we don't have issues and open doors with Jezebel and Luciferianism and death and hell and Antichrist. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the anointing, according to Psalm 133 and 1, would be just like the anointing upon the head and the beard and the skirts of Aaron, that we would dwell together in unity. Father, I pray that we would form a council of apostolic and prophetic leaders that are given governing authority over your flocks and over your house and that we will build the ecclesia globally the way that you have set us in the earth to do it. We don't want to conflict with any other movements or networks. Let's complement them. And what they're lacking, we will supplement them. But I pray, Father, for your anointing and your power to be released upon Ecclesia Global. We build an altar. Come on, I need you to open your mouth. We build an altar of worship. We build a place of surrender. We build a place of yielding. And we thank you that you're cutting covenant with us upon the altar even now. That you can trust us. Mande sombrega de evangelia. Sombrestone entelege bravanzo toko brekensdo ejele antombrande bebekia. You can trust us, Father, with nations. You can trust us with influence and affluence. You can trust us with anointing and mande sombrega die and revelation. You can trust us with power and authority. You can trust us with your people. We won't damage them. We won't rape them. We won't manipulate them. We won't control them. We won't break their spirits. We will not destroy them. But we will serve them with your anointing and your ability in us. Father, solidify this agency and this network of apostleship. I pray that you would infuse the vision upon the hearts of our primary leadership staff first and foremost. Put it in their spirit. Let them know it is okay for them to invest in this vision. Let them know it is okay for them to really connect from a heart level to this vision. Let them know that it is okay not to be at a smorgasbord of a whole bunch of different involvements. But Father, that you've called us to do something that is tremendous and that they are not wasting their time or spinning their wheels in the mud to connect. We're growing. We're building. We're accomplishing what you have set us in the earth to do. 
And I tell you this all prophetically, that a day is going to come that many of the major networks that we see today are going to collapse. Many of them have not been built on truth. And in that day and in that hour, people that have literally made up their mind to never go to church again will come across some of our paths. And what we represent will be the thing that delivers and salvages their entire ministry and destiny. I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost is preparing this agency, this network to be a solution in an hour that the questions haven't even been asked yet. But we will be there to be the answer. He's infusing upon us a special grace and anointing. A trademark of this network will be signs and wonders and miracles. A trademark of this network will be unusual miracles wrought by the hands of the people that are connected to it. A trademark of this network will be unusual deliverances and breakthroughs. The days will come that the sun will stand still. The days will come that creation will be impacted and affected by the words of those that issue decrees that are attached to this network. The day will come that multitudes and multitudes will be born into the kingdom of God as the grip of satanic princes is broken completely off of regions and nations and territories. The day will come that mass revival will hit spheres of the globe and it will have Ecclesia Global attached to it. This is an hour where God is raising up a remnant of people that have been on the backside of the desert, that have been ostracized, that have been rejected, that have been abandoned, that have been confused and misunderstood. Your season of vindication, your hour of manifestation has come, and the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. For this is the hour. For this is the move. And I hear the Lord speaking concerning a visitation that's going to come upon the earth. And he says that he is cleaning house. He says that judgment has to begin at the house of the Lord. The measurement, the sifting, the removing and the separating of the wheat from the tear. But oh, what a glorious manifestation will come. As people will be gripped again by his glory. They will be gripped again by his truth and by his power. And the Lord is raising up a tremendous army, the likes of which have never been seen before in the earth. And they will march to the sound of a different drum. And the counsel of the Lord will be opened unto them, and in his counsel they will stand, says the Spirit of grace. And the directives and the edicts of the Lord they will carry out in the earth with unprecedented power, saith the sovereign God. This is the hour of the manifestation of many things that will swiftly come to pass. I hear the Lord say, observe the time and be ready. I pray over every house that is here. I pray over every region that is here. I pray over nations that are represented here. That father the forces of darkness that they would be pushed back. And that the angelic delegations assigned to these ministry gifts and mantles will be placed on assignment to furnish and supply everything that is needed for their houses to manifest at the next level. Father, we push out the walls of their habitation and we assign expansion and breakthrough to every house. Father, we assign harvesting angels to every house that will cause and push the harvest right through their doors. 
I pray, Father, that you would put the seal of the Lord upon those that are a part of Ecclesia Global. That the mark and the seal of the next wave of apostleship, that it would be upon them. That the angels would know that they are to dispense to them what is needed for the impending apostolic move upon the earth. That they are to give them the influence and the affluence and the seats of power and authority in all of their spheres. They are the ones. They are marked for it. They are sealed for it. Now, Father, I decree as the apostle of this, your network, that this work will not fail. That our walls will be built up. That our people are encased and encompassed by your glory. That the Holy Spirit and the sovereign God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our head and our leader. And that our ears are circumcised to hear his voice so that we can do his bidding. I seal this people to your divine will and purpose. In Jesus' mighty name. Put your hands together and thank the Lord. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to the Ecclesia Global Podcast, where once again we believe in the sovereign move of the Lord to reform the church and the spheres of society globally. We'll see you next time.